Bienvenidos and welcome to the Voces Podcast. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am your host. Today's guest is Adela Kohab Moadeb. Adela is an Israel activist, published author, and JD candidate at Yeshiva University's Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. In 2019, Adela filed a Title VI complaint with the Office of Civil Rights against New York University for failing to protect the Jewish community from consistent harassment. Her case prompted the executive order to include Jewish studies in Title VI protections and ended in the first Title VI settlement openly addressing anti-Semitism as a form of discrimination. Her work, from political advocacy to interfaith peace rallies, has been recognized by national and international organizations, earning her designation as a Broom and Allen Fellow, a Propel Women 30 Under 30, and Jewish Weeks 36 Under 36. Adela is proudly a Syrian-Lebanese Jew born in Mexico City, Mexico, and raised in Deal, New Jersey. Welcome, Adela. Let's get started. So as we begin, I'd love for you to root us in this conversation and, and begin with your story. Where does it all begin for you? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so my name is Adela. My grandparents are originally from Syria and from Lebanon. And from there, they went to Mexico, where I was born. And I moved to the U.S. when I was young, but I really got to grow up part-time in both. And being Syrian, Lebanese, Mexican, Jewish, have uh, all been, you know, huge parts of who I am and who I am today. Mm. Yes. I love the nuance you bring up about your identity. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be Mexicana through a Syrian and Lebanese lens? Well, I think for me, it's one thing that I never realized how different all of my cultures were until I really got to the U.S. And I realized, okay, there's things that I do that might be because I'm Mexican. There's things I do that might be because I'm Syrian. And there's things I do that might be because I'm Jewish. And um, it really was being hit with difference that made me see all the beauty in everything. So, for example, you know, in my grandparents' houses, they spoke Arabic. And we were sitting at home, of course. Um, and my grandpa always said, you know, you have to light a hookah and serve tea before people leave. So I have the hospitality aspect. But as we know, in Latino culture, we love hosting people at home all the time. And then there were certain slang words I wasn't sure. Are they Arabic? Are they Spanish? Are they a Jewish thing? Um, and I never, ever, ever knew. But I think that the biggest aspect where I realized how similar all my cultures are, are with my mom, because my mom is an Arab mom, a Latina mom, and a Jewish mom. And those three stereotypes really do live up to exactly what she is. So, um, and being a woman, you know, being raised by such a strong Arab, Latina, Jewish woman, um, I got to learn a lot. Yes, yes. I appreciate, I appreciate that reflection about your mother and, and truly how all of her worlds kind of came together to raise you. And it's interesting to think for all of us that are children of immigrants who have been immigrants ourselves, who are learning new languages, how all of those things will come together as we have a role in impacting future generations. So tell me a little bit more about your experience growing up in Mexico and the United States. How did you navigate those two worlds specifically? So um, in Mexico, I was from Mexico City. That's where I was born. And that's where, you know, my grandparents, my cousins, and my dad actually are. I, what I really loved about Mexico was the community that I grew up in. Um, the Jewish-Mexican community, I felt, was very uplifting. And when I moved to the U.S., I grew up in New Jersey in a town called Deal. It is basically all Syrian Jews. Um, everyone knows each other. And that's actually one thing I liked about Latino culture that I got here was the whole, you know, everyone knows each other and, you know, each other's grandparents and the community itself did feel very homey. 
I think in the U.S., there's a lot of loss when it comes to family where you see your grandparents every now and then, as opposed to in Mexico City. I just always felt like family was such a big part of my life. My cousins were like my siblings. My second cousins were like my cousins. And everything was just a degree closer. And I think that that's one thing that I was really missing growing up in the U.S., you know, not having all the cousins, not having the big grandparents' house that everyone goes to for lunches and for dinners and the big parties um, that you do for your family. And I think that that's not just a Latino story, but that's a Latino immigrant in the U.S. story. Um, suddenly feeling like you're elsewhere, like you're kind of outside of your bubble of people who are like you. Um, but at the same time, growing up in the U.S. and having Mexico so close, being able to go, um, you know, just a flight away, spend those summers with my grandparents or something I could never live down. I agree with you 100%. And it's important to note that we're not saying that Americans don't care about family, but we are noting, you know, I'm, I want to elevate what you're saying that within Latino culture, there's a closeness, you know, in our daily patterns of living, our, the closeness that we have to our family does differ than it does in the United States. You know, like, as you mentioned, our first cousins become like our siblings, our second cousins are like our first cousins. And really, you know, we don't even have those types of separations around second, third, fourth, at least in my family, you know, everyone was a cousin, you were a cousin. Um, and it's different in America. There's much more separation. There's much more, you know, call ahead when you're coming over. That doesn't exist in Latino culture. You just show up. You just show up. I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but they are different. And when you're navigating these different identities, these different cultures as a young person, you have to navigate what that means and how you show up. Now, I'm curious to know, you know, Deal, New Jersey, what's what's the deal in Deal? You know, are there a lot of other Mexicanos there? Were you, were you, did you have access to a number of other Latin Jews? What was that experience like for you? So looking at communities like the one in San Diego or even the one in Miami, you know, Mexican Jewish communities, that's something I didn't really get here at all. Um, there are no other Mexican Jews. The only other one was my cousin, which is the only reason why we moved to this small town in the first place. It happened to be, we were looking to move away from Mexico for a bit. Her family was living here. It was her brother's bar mitzvah. My mom came, saw an American suburb and said, this is it. This is where we're coming. Um, three years later, she moved back to Mexico with her family. So, um, that was the end of my Mexican family here. Um, but I was the only Mexican Jew. I was the only Mexican friend that most of my friends had growing up. So I had to deal with all the typical questions that you get. Um, people don't imagine Mexico City the way that Mexico City is. Or the typical, oh, you're from Mexico? I went to Cancun last year. Cool. That's very different from where I'm from. Um, but I actually did have the opportunity to take a couple of my friends to Mexico um, to meet my grandparents at my aunt's houses. And they really got to see, you know, the life that I've had all these years during all those summers or all those Jewish holidays that I went back. And um, I got to share that with them, which was nice. But the, because I did grow up in a Syrian community, community itself is very bubbled. It doesn't interact much. I went to a Jewish school. Um, and now it's happening a lot more often, but not a lot of people ever went to college outside, especially women. So when I did decide to go to college and I moved to New York, it wasn't just the getting out of my Syrian Jewish community. I also saw how many people there were more like me because I was afraid of leaving the Syrian Jewish community in New Jersey and suddenly being this big New York world. But instead I got to meet Mexican Jews from Miami, Mexican Jews from San Diego. I got to meet Panamanian Jews. My best friend actually is from Spain, the Canary Islands. And I'm like, there are so many Latino Jews. We actually created um, a group at NYU called Latinos Unidos, and we were all these 
judíos latinos unidos and we would do these Shabbat dinners and it was a lot more similar to, I didn't even realize how different I was from my New Jersey culture being a Latino Jew. So I got to get a lot more of that in Manhattan. So there's a give and take on both sides. Definitely. And a lot of magic can happen on campus. So before we get into your activism, I just want to know how cool it must have been to meet other Syrian Jews who have also been impacted by their local cultures. So meeting other Syrian Jews who grew up in San Diego and Panama and Mexico City and Miami and getting to a place where you're able to say, hey, you know, I do that too, but I do it a little bit differently because perhaps, you know, where I've grown up has made me look at it through this way. So I just want to name that's really cool. And that's probably one of the most wonderful things about college life is that you get to discover a lot about yourself, about your community, about your culture, about your values. And you also get to get the opportunity to challenge a little bit who you think you are and what you're capable of doing. So that takes us to your activism. You weren't always Adela, the Israel and Jewish activist on campus. You know, you went through a journey and I'd love for you to share with us a little bit about what that was. Of course. Thank you. So yeah, when I first got to NYU, I said, you know, Judaism's great. It's always going to be a part of who I am. But I went to a Jewish school my whole life. I grew up in a Jewish community. So I didn't want that to define me in college. So as soon as I got to NYU, I got involved in everything except the Jewish community. Um, I had a radio show with WNYU for um, about a year. I joined Hall Council. I was on student government. I just started doing all these other things and everything was great. And one day walking through the park, uh, there was a group of Jewish students. They had Israeli flags and you know, I was walking through. So they you know, gave me a flag and I took the flag and didn't know anyone. And they got into a circle and I got into a circle and they started talking about people who had lost their lives in a bus bombing in Israel earlier that week. Um, one of them being my age, um, who a lot of these students had gone to school with. He grew up in New York. And I just started thinking, and I was holding this flag with total strangers. And I said, how did I go from, you know, being so proud of my Jewish community and my Jewish identity to not even knowing that someone my age that could have been me lost their life in Israel? He was doing a volunteer program, just like so many Jews do. Um, so I really started thinking, singing Hatikva with this flag with these strangers. And I said, I'm not going to look for causes to fight for if I already have so many of my own. So I said, I'd get involved. Um, next thing I know, by the end of that year, I became vice president of a group there called Realize Israel. The year after I became president, so for two years, I become the senator for Jewish students on NYU student government, vice president of the Jewish sorority. And next thing I know, I'm also on Cudillos Latinos. And Suddenly, Judaism became my primary identity marker. Why? Because I felt like when I was in school, that's what was making me different. Suddenly, everyone accepted me for all my other parts. It was so cool, you're Syrian, so cool, you're Mexican. But suddenly, the Jewish aspect had a little bit, a little bit of tension. Um, I was studying, and I did study, Middle Eastern politics at NYU. And that's where I really saw the first place where I could just fully be myself, right? Because end of the day, you know, I was saying before, my grandparents all spoke Arabic at home. That was their home culture. And then they got to Mexico and adopted the Latino culture. And that's where my mom, my dad got to make that their own. And that's where I was born. So I just wanted to be equally proud of everything that I was. Um, unfortunately, things started to get a little bit tense on campus. Started with your typical pledges to boycott the state of Israel. But the pledge to boycott a state um, very quickly devolved into a student-on-student -student boycott. So suddenly, if you were part of Realize Israel, groups wouldn't partner with you. Then we had professors signing on to pledge us to boycott Israel, too. So then I had Jewish students coming up to me saying, you know, do I take a birthright sticker off of my computer? 
do I hide my mug and David when I walk into a class with a professor that I know is not necessarily going to be very appreciative? Um, and as things started developing, I started meeting with administrators. I did represent the community on student government, so it was my official capacity to be speaking on their behalf. And every time something came up, the administration kept telling me I was overreacting. And then things got even worse. They started taking pictures of Jewish students, posting them on Facebook, calling them horrible things, um, releasing flyers with assault rifles, saying revolt for you have nothing to lose but your chains. And suddenly this um, anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism line started blame, blurring a whole lot on campus. Um, and we were going to have a huge party every year um, at NYU. We organize a party called the Rave in the Park, where we celebrate Yom Ma'ut, which is Israel Independence Day. This event is co-sponsored by almost every Jewish group at NYU. Uh, we invite anyone to join. It's in the middle of Washington Square. And usually it's this amazing, beautiful moment. My mom comes every year and you just see so many kids and their flags singing and dancing in Hebrew. And my mom every year looks at and says, this is Judaism in the 21st century. She says, how, how did we get to a point where you could be in the biggest city in the world in Manhattan, dancing so openly, so proudly with your Judaism? And this beautiful event that year, we were a little bit nervous to hold. Um, so I spoke to the school. I told them, you know, we're having this big event. I'm pretty sure it'll be protested. Um, protest is fine, but I'm worried for student safety on both sides. Again, they told me I was overreacting. And uh, when we showed up to that event, um, the first thing that happened at the opening of the event was a student came with an Israeli flag. You just lit it on fire and just let it burn. And we all just stood there and watched it. We continued. We said, you know, everyone has a right to freedom of speech, freedom of protest. We're going to continue. This is an event. Let's bring in positive energy, positive energy. And um, later on, when we were singing Hatik, by that beautiful moment where you feel trees vibrate with the energy of all these people singing together in unison, the hope of 2,000 years. And you had another student who was actually in a lot of my classes, he was in two of my classes, comes to the middle of the circle, grabs a microphone from the Jewish girl that was singing and starts yelling, free Palestine. And at that moment, everything kind of turned chaotic. They took our 10-foot Israeli flag, they tore it to shreds, hung it from trees and lampposts. So this beautiful event that we used to have where we celebrate who we are and share it with the whole, not only NYU, but New York community, somehow we have our flag burned hanging from trees and a Jewish girl physically assaulted. And that was a very big turning point. That was when I realized, you know, this isn't just a college group. This is a larger problem. And the school promised me that they would take action, but they told me they would do it behind the scenes. And again, I said, 100%, do whatever you need to do behind the scenes, not behind the scenes, as long as you're doing something to make my community feel safe again. And less than a year later, they gave an award to the group that burned the flag and assaulted the Jewish student. It didn't feel like we were important at all. At that point, I had left the Middle Eastern Studies Department. I had left my position on student government. I really just wanted to graduate. And about two months before graduation, I, none of the administrators I'd met with me for the last two, three years before that would even schedule a meeting. So I got in touch with some lawyers and I asked if I had a case against the school for anti-Semitism. They told me that at the time, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act didn't include religion as a protective category. So they told me probably not. I insisted I'd send over my materials. And after they looked through, they told me that they'd never seen something so strong that can make the case that anti-Semitism is a form of discrimination. They told me that I can likely become a cornerstone in Jewish law in the United States. And they asked me if I was ready to become the face for that. And I said, yes. I called my mom and I told her I'm going to sue NYU 
And she said, are you sure? And I said, yes. I told her I couldn't imagine graduating without finally taking a stand. I couldn't imagine any other student at NYU going through what we went through. And I already went through the goose chase. I met with every administrator. I spoke to everyone. Everyone knew what was happening at NYU. How does this award come to be? And then suddenly they can't even answer to the community. So I filed this case. Thank God I did graduate um, from NYU. But I spent that whole entire summer just making as much publicity as I could until I got a call from the White House. Next thing I know, I find myself on stage with the sitting president of the United States. Made sure to mention I was proudly Mexican. And uh, three days after that, an executive order was drafted, executive uh, effective immediately to officially include Judaism under Title VI protections. I want to know how much courage that must have taken Adela. You know, NYU, New York University is not a small organization. It's a world-renowned institution. And clearly you had a lot of reasons to move forward the way you chose to move forward to sue NYU. So let's fast forward. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination based on race, color, or national origin in programs or activities receiving federal financial assistance. This includes colleges and universities. What does this now executive order achieve and where does that leave you today? So this executive order, what does it do? Not only does it protect every Jewish student and tell them that their voice matters, it tells universities across the entire country that their Jewish students matter. And more importantly, it sets a precedent for a religious minority to have protection under civil rights law of Title VI. And that's kind of where I re-thundered and I realized what my mission is in life. My mission isn't only to advocate for the Jewish community, it's to advocate for religious minorities. So what am I up to now is usually the next question. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm pursuing a law degree. I realize that you can do as much as you'd like in terms of activism, but if you don't have the legal tools, then what change can you make? It's a lot harder to change things when it comes to a grassroots level. But once you have a legal background, there's a whole new structure that you can work with. So campus was hard. Um, it was some of the worst nights I've had. Um, but at the same time, I always had the Jewish community behind me. They were always there to lift me up. It was hard because I represented them and I knew I was representing so much more. And sometimes I realized it's hard to just be the face of something and to be in the forefront and to just take every hit after hit, blow after blow. But there's nothing I would have done differently. Right on. And I'm curious, you know, in your opinion, as someone who just graduated from undergrad, how can students engage in critical dialogue because it's bound to happen about Israel and Palestine on campus without it leading to violence or intimidation of any kind for any student? So um, that's a great, great question. Um, I think that the biggest thing to do is avoid demonization of either side. And I see this as much on you know the side of the Jewish pro-Israel community as I see it in anti-Israel communities. You demonize the other side so much so that you cannot in any way see them as a rational person. And I think that that's one of the interesting things that I had was that I was in you know, the Middle Eastern Studies Department for three years before I left. I was taking my Arabic classes. I was very friendly with, for example, the student that um, committed the physical assault. He was, again, in my classes. Like I, we were actually, we were in a feminism and Islam class once. And pretty much half the class was your typical NYU student that was like, nope, religion's oppressive. And there he is, a religious Muslim. And there I am, a religious Jew, being like, 
no, religion leaves a lot of room and it's not room encouragement for people to rise and take ownership of things, especially like, you know, there's a beautiful traditions for women in both of our religions. And we were saying they're being like, no, like religious feminists here. Uh, so it's funny how, depending on who the adversary is, we found ourselves on different sides. I think that the line between free speech and harassment has already been drawn, right? If you want to make the case that Title VI shouldn't exist in the first place, that anyone should be going around harassing anyone and the school has no obligation, sure, you can make that case. But it already exists, right? You know, when it comes to racial minorities, national minorities, ethnic minorities, all of that is already protected under Title VI. But why is it that my flag is the only one that can be burned? Because had um, the flag of any other country been burned, that would be considered Title VI immediately. But when it becomes a Jewish flag, it becomes a political statement. Wow, Adela. In the short amount of life that you've lived, you have done so much and you should be so proud of everything that you've done because you've really fought for what you thought is right. You've gone up against things that are really scary, like suing NYU to ensure that future generations of Jewish students don't just go to school, don't just go to college and live a, you know, make it through as Jewish students, but actually live and thrive um, as, as students on campus. And I think that's something that we can all commend and we should all celebrate. Y bueno, finalmente, hay varias personas que están escuchando este podcast que son bilingües, hispanoparlantes. Y si es que tú quieres, te invito a decir unas palabras en español. Todos siempre me preguntan que cómo podemos luchar en contra del antisemitismo. Y les digo que es una palabra muy fácil, el orgullo. Porque si tú eres orgulloso de quién eres y le enseñas a todos quién eres, ahí sí, inmediatamente van a querer escuchar. Y si no quieren escuchar de ti, a lo menos sabes quién, saben quién eres. Y también creo que algo muy importante que aprendí es que el español te abre el mundo. O sea, si pensamos que hay antisemitismo en el mundo que habla inglés, cuando llega el mundo que habla español, no saben de nosotros, porque no estamos hablando de quiénes somos. Y te, poder hablar otro idioma te da un superpoder, te puede abrir la mente y te puede abrir a un mundo diferente, que la verdad en Estados Unidos creo que se pierde mucho. A veces siento que soy dos personas diferentes, cuando soy Adela de México y cuando soy Adela en Estados Unidos. Y lo más importante que puedo hacer es juntarlos los dos, ser Adela, judía, mexicana, siria, libanesa, viviendo en Manhattan, estudiando derecho. ¿Por qué? Porque... Cuando desasocias tu personalidad y cuando tratas de ser personas diferentes, en idiomas diferentes, en lugares diferentes, te vuelves loco y no le estás haciendo justicia a tu propio ser, siendo quien eres tú en todos los espacios al 100%. Muchas gracias, Adela. Thank you so much. You are truly an inspiration. Eres una inspiración para todos. We can't wait to keep following what you're doing. So thank you for sharing some time and, and, and giving us a glimpse of what it is that's taken place in your life and in your world. No, gracias a ti y gracias a todos los que están escuchando. La verdad es un honor. Thank you, Adela. Your story is a reminder that no two Latin Jewish stories are alike. And therefore, it is important that we continue to elevate as many Latin Jewish stories as possible. To all of our listeners out there, thank you for your love and support. We are thrilled to be back for a second season and we wouldn't have been able to do this without your commitment. New episodes will be released every Friday from October 1st through December 17th. For more information, please visit jutina.org. Lastly, gracias to Fuente Latina for being an incredible partner and co-sponsoring five episodes of season two of our Voces podcast. Los queremos mucho. Until next time, ciao!